Samuel chapter 3 is where you should be at. And we do read now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, but David grew stronger and, and stronger, and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. And so, Father, tonight we thank you for this time that we've had of worship. And Lord, I just pray that you'd bless this time now in the study of your word, knowing that not only are we refreshed and renewed when we come and just lift our voices and hearts to you, and, but Lord, also as we just receive from you the word of God. And I pray that the seed of the word would be planted in our hearts, that it would take root and grow and, and be planted and firm. And from tonight, from making the decision to be here, because we know that Wednesday's going to be a long day. We can make a decision to stay at home and get rest. And um, perhaps some are here that haven't even had a chance to eat. But Lord, I do pray that because we made the effort and expended the energy to be here, that the seed that is planted would bear fruit in our lives. And Lord, that we would be drawn close to you and that the things that we make application of would be a tremendous blessing to us. So speak to our hearts this mor- uh, tonight. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So as we open up Second Samuel, of course, David um, is going to be reigning over Israel, and he would begin his reign, as we saw, he's in Hebron. The first Samuel, that book ended with Saul dying on Mount Gilboa there in Israel as the Philistines came up into the Valley of Jezreel and attacked the children of Israel. And Saul and his two sons, one of them being Jonathan, were killed on Mount Gilboa. And that would end that season of David's life where he was running from Saul. He had been running from Saul as Saul relentlessly pursued him for about 12 years. And that's really quite amazing because that was a long time for David to be, you know, displaced from his home. He wouldn't be able to go home to his wife, Michael. Uh, Matter of fact, she was given to someone else, as we're going to see here in this chapter, and uh, he's going to ask for her back. We know that David's family had to go on the east side of the Jordan River over to that area of Moab to protect them. So David, being in the prime of his life, just being a young man, probably just a teenager, around 18 years old, when he was serving Saul, God's hand was on David. David had already been anointed as the new king of Israel there in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel. But David didn't ascend to the throne right away. He didn't go to the palace of Saul and boot him off the throne and say, I'm the new king. But instead what happened was Saul would have David come and minister to him, Saul being one that was told by Samuel the prophet that the kingdom has been taken away from you, Saul, and given to another man after God's own heart. And we saw that David would come and minister music to Saul because Saul had this distressing spirit that came upon him. And at first Saul loved David, but then became very jealous of David because it became very evident that God's hand was on David's life as he would slew the giant Goliath. He, he would bring the nation into victory against the Philistines. Uh, the women of the cities and villages that David passed through would sing songs about David. And when Saul heard those songs, he became very jealous and envious of David. And so that would lead to him wanting David dead. So he threw spears at David, he missed, and then he pursued David through the wilderness. And so for those years, David had to learn to trust in the Lord. We 
talked about those psalms. We made mention of them that he wrote during those times that he's hiding in caves, those times that he was in Philistine territory. And he learned that the Lord was his refuge and he learned that the Lord was his strength. And he would be one that desired to please the Lord in how he reacted towards Saul. And that was, I will not touch the Lord's anointed. David had opportunity to end it. He had opportunity to lop Saul's head off, not once but twice. But he refused to do it because he was trusting in God and he wasn't going to take vengeance out on Saul. But you know what? He said that I'm going to trust that the Lord, you put Saul in that position and you're going to take him out. And so now that Saul has been killed on Mount Gilboa, David is entering now into a new season of his life. And in the first two chapters, we saw that David would come to Hebron, which is south of Jerusalem, and then he would be anointed the king of Judah. And he's anointed king and would rule over Judah for seven years. And it would be Saul's house um, and Ishboseth, uh, uh, Ish his son, that would be ruling over the other 11 tribes of Israel. And so that's where we saw that this battle broke up out in chapter 2. It was Abner, who is the captain of Ishbosheth's men, uh, that went to battle against Joab, who's David's captain, and they had this skirmish and, and this fight. But over time, we see that it was Saul that his house grew weaker and weaker, and David's house, or that is, David's power was growing stronger and stronger. And you see, the reason is because David was called by God to be the king of Israel. And, and it was a work of the Spirit. It was Ishbosheth. His reigning was a work of the flesh. And you see, as we desire to minister as Christians, we need to remember it needs to be by the calling of God and by the power of God in our lives. Because if it ever becomes a work of the flesh, we will become weaker and weaker and weaker. You see, that's why anything that we do in our own lives individually, anything that we do as a church corporately, that we need to make sure that we're seeking the Lord and, and praying to the Lord. Lord, is this what you want us to do? Is it something that, that you've called us to do? And it needs to be a work of the Spirit. And, of course, it was the Apostle Paul that would write to the Galatian believers saying, what has started in the Spirit, don't try to perfect in the flesh. So here was David. He was getting stronger, his house, his power, and soon we're going to see that he's going to end up being the king over all of Israel because God had ordained that. God had commissioned that to happen, and we see that it was Saul's house that was getting weaker. So as we continue in verse 2 through 5, we see David's wives that are mentioned here, sons who were born to David, verse 2, in Hebron. His firstborn was Ammon by Ahinoham, the Jezreelitess, the second Chiliad by Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite, the third, Absalom, the son of Meheka, the daughter of Tal Talmai, king of Gersher. And the fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggith. The fifth, Stephatiah, of the son of Ab uh, Abital. And then verse 5 to 6, uh, Itriam, by David's wife, Eglah. These were born to David in Hebron. So we know that David had multiple wives. He had concubines as well. These aren't all the wives that David had, and he's going to end up adding more wives as well. As David is there in Hebron, we see six wives that are mentioned here, and born to those six wives are six sons that are mentioned. Now, the Bible is very, very honest about the lives of those men that are recorded here in the Scriptures. And the Bible records that David had these wives, and in this 
culture at this time, a lot of times a, a leader, a king, and David would be one, as well as Solomon and some of the other leaders of the house of Israel, that they would have multiple wives. And sometimes, a lot of times, it was for you know, uh, political alliances and to show how powerful that they were. But we know that it was God that intended for the marriage relationship be, to be between one man and one woman. And that was defined clear back in the garden in chapter 2 of the book of Genesis. That a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. We know that God ordained marriage, that he gave the definition of marriage clear back in the garden in the beginning. And a husband and a wife coming together, a man and a woman, in that one man, one woman relationship, and they become one flesh. That's God's intention for the marriage, and I believe it still was at this time as well. We know that when the religious leaders, as we saw in Mark's gospel, would come to Jesus and ask Jesus about marriage and about divorce and, and uh, is it you know, okay to divorce your wife because Moses permitted a certificate of divorce. And it was Jesus that said, have you guys not read? And he gave that definition clear back in Genesis chapter 2. And, and I love that Jesus took them back to the word of God, clear back to the book of Genesis chapter 2. Now, there are circles and there are groups that say, oh, the first 11 chapters of Genesis really aren't true. It's just a myth and it's just allegories. And there are whole denominations that have adopted uh, the theological position that the first 11 chapters of Genesis really aren't inspired. Well, Jesus put his okay on it and he approved it. And he said, have you guys not read how God brought, you know, man and woman together and the two shall become one flesh? And then Jesus said, what man has put together or what God has put together, let no man put asunder or separate. So Jesus, he gave the definition that the marriage was between one man and one woman. And then Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, as we know, that as he's talking about the responsibility of husbands and wives, that he then would give that definition of marriage too, quoting from Genesis chapter 2. And so David here, as he took on multiple wives, he was out of the will of God. We also know that Deuteronomy chapter 17, when the children of Israel were getting ready to come into the promised land, the Lord has given them the law again because a whole new generation was about ready to go in. And Deuteronomy means the second law. It doesn't mean it was a second set of laws, but a new generation going in, they were ready physically, but spiritually they weren't ready. And so Moses there in the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy is a book that, that Moses gives them the law once again. And that's why it seems like Deuteronomy just kind of repeats what, what Exodus talks about and what Leviticus talks about and Numbers talks about because Moses wants to make sure that they're established as a nation that has the law and they know the law. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 17, when you guys go into the land, Moses said, that the Lord says, when you ask for a king, because you see, God knew that they would ask for a king some 450 years later, it would surprise Samuel, the prophet, and the Samuel who was the last judge of Israel, when the people came to Samuel and said, we want a king, we want to be like other nations. It grieved Samuel, and the Lord said, they haven't rejected you, Samuel, they've rejected me, because I wanted to be their king. I wanted to truly rule over them. I've given them everything to, to, to be a prosperous nation and to be blessed and to be a witness to the other nations. But yet they want to be like those other nations, so they're asking for a king. And so God said in Deuteronomy chapter 17, when that happens, he knew what was going to happen, make sure that the king that he knows, 
that he doesn't multiply horses, that he doesn't multiply gold, and he doesn't multiply wives. And we see here that David is violating that law that that is given to the children of Israel and given to the king that he was not supposed to multiply wives. And the reason that I'm mentioning that is because, you see, God tells us not to do things or stay away from things because he wants to bless our lives. And when he gave that definition of a marriage, that is between one man and one woman. And what God has put together, let no man put asunder. He knows that 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 is the best way for us. He ordained that and commissioned that. Don't violate that is what he says. And David did. And you see, it caused great grief in David's life. As we're going to continue to read here through 2 Samuel, seeing the reign of David, he was the greatest king that Israel ever had. He was a great warrior. He was one that was a great administrator. He brought the nation together and brought peace and prosperity to the nation like they never saw before. But we also know that David had some shortcomings and some failings, and some of those shortcomings were a result of his family and a result of that he took multiple wives and and had all these children, and we're going to see that he didn't deal with some of those children. He didn't bring discipline. He he wasn't ruling over his house in a way that he could have and should have. We we look at some of them that are mentioned here, and, and we see that Ammon is mentioned. Number one, he was one that ended up as we're going to see, raping his half-sister. And then he ended up being murdered by his half-brother, Absalom. And Absalom, it's interesting that we see here in verse 3, the son of Meheka, the daughter of Talmai, king of Gersha, he's marrying a woman who's a Gershonite, one of the tribes of the Canaanites. And the Lord also said, make sure that you don't marry those foreign wives because they'll draw you away from the Lord. Now, David was a man after God's own heart because he never bowed the knee to an idol. But his son Solomon, who had 300 wives and 700 concubines, that many of those wives came from foreign lands. And they would cause Solomon to bow the knee to idols. They were idol worshipers. We even see Solomon, that he would build temples to those false idols and plunge the nation into idol worship once again. So David here we know that he had difficulty in his house that we're going to see Absalom would end up trying to take the throne from him. We know Adonijah, he was one that ended up causing trouble and heartache in David's family. And I just want to encourage you that, you see, when God tells us to keep his commandments and to follow after his ways, it's because he wants us to experience that life abundantly. It isn't that he was trying to be a killjoy or take anything away from David. But he was wanting to protect those leaders and protect his people. And he says, don't do this. Don't multiply wives. We know that Solomon, he multiplied horses and he multiplied gold as well. And it ended up affecting his life in a negative way. So here are a list of, of the sons of David, some of them, and there's others that will be listed at another time. But as we pick up our text at verse 6, now it was so while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David that Abner was strengthening his hold on the house of Saul. And Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah. So Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? So Ishbosheth was really a weak leader. We see that it is Abner who was the head of his army and the armies of Israel there and those 11 tribes that were under the reign of Ishbosheth. We see that really he is the power behind the throne here. And here is Ishbosheth. He accuses 
Abner here of going to his father's concubine. And we don't know if the accusation, accusation was true or not, but we know that the uh, response of Abner was one of anger, as we read in verse 8. Then Abner became very angry at the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah? Today I show loyalty to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not delivered you into the hand of David. And you charge me today with a fault concerning this woman. May God do so to Abner and more also, if I do not do for David as the Lord has sworn to him to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. And verse 11, and he could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. Abner gets mad. He says, listen, I've supported you. I've been good to your family. I'm the one that really put you in place. And now you accused me of this. That's it. I'm going to go over to the other side, to David. And he's going to do you in. I protected you, but that's it. I'm going to believe in you. And I think that Abner here, he knew that David would be the king of all Israel. He, he says that it is David, that the kingdom has been transferred to him just as it has come from the Lord. The Lord has sworn that to him from Dan, the northern part of the nation, to Beersheba. So whenever you see those two cities put together, it's talking about the whole nation. It's going to come together, and you are done, Ishbosheth. And Abner, he was doing the right thing and joining David's side because that was God's will, that David was to be king. But here's the thing, he was doing it for the wrong reasons. He was doing it because he was upset. He was doing it because he was mad. He was doing it because he was trying to be vengeful towards Ishbosheth. And you see, we need to be careful in our actions, what we do. It may seem like that we're making the right decision. It may seem like we're going in the right direction, but we got to make sure that our motives are right, that we do it with the right motive and a right heart, that we're not doing things out of just anger and malice and out of disrespect or out of bitterness. Well, I'm just going to, to leave because I can't stand this hassle anymore. And maybe the Lord would want you to leave. But are you leaving with the right heart? Do you have the right motive? Or are you just trying to be vengeful and hurtful to others? And Abner is doing that. And he's joining in with David because it's, he thinks it's going to benefit him. And he's going to get at Ishbosheth. Yes, he should have recognized earlier that David was to be the rightful king. And you see, David wasn't trying to force the issue here. As David is getting stronger and stronger, and Ishbosheth is getting weaker and weaker, I think David could have just taken his guys and gone over and done Ishbosheth in and taken over the throne and taken over his king, and it would have been okay. But David was waiting on the Lord, and that's something I learned about from David here. He didn't try to force the issue. He's going to wait until the situation opens up, that God opens those doors for him to be the king over all of Israel. You know, that brings great comfort to me. Because maybe you're here tonight, and I know there's been times in my own life where God puts something on your heart, and, and you sense a calling in your life, and all of a sudden it's not happening in the way that you thought, or the way that, you know, or as fast as you thought it would happen. And you're going, Lord, did you forget about the calling you put on my life? Uh, Lord, do you not see me? Why isn't this happening? I still have this, this burning. I still have this, this sense that you are calling me to this, but nothing is happening right now. And David, for 12 years, 
from the time that he was anointed king, would be chased and pursued. But God was teaching him very important lessons. And he would be in Hebron for another seven years, so almost for 20 years from the time that Samuel whispered in his ear that you are going to be the new king of Israel. He was waiting on the Lord, and the Lord was preparing him, and the Lord was doing a work in him. And it's going to bring him to be now the king of Israel. One of the verses that brings great comfort to me is when Paul was writing to the Philippian believers, and in chapter 1, verse 6, he says, being confident. And when he says being confident, he's saying, I'm so sure of it. It's an absolute certainty. No doubt about it. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion, especially in the day of Christ Jesus. And sometimes I I think, Lord, it isn't happening. Or other times I think the whole thing's going to fall apart, Lord. And the Lord reminds me of that verse that, Jeff, you can be confident of this. That the work that I have begun in you, I'm going to bring it to completion. You don't have to strive. You don't have to strain. You don't have to struggle. You don't have to sweat. But you rest. And you trust. And you wait. And allow me to do that work that I want to do in you and through you. So here is Abner. He's trying to, to push the, the situation. He, he's joining in with David, which is a good thing, but for the wrong reasons. And he has anger. And he wants to get back at Isbosheth. And we continue as we read here in verse 12. And Abner sent messengers on his behalf to David, saying, Who is the land? And saying, Also make your covenant with me, and indeed my hand shall be with you to bring all Israel to you. And David said, Good, I will make a covenant with you, but one thing I require of you, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. So David sent messengers to Ithbosheth and Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife, Michael, whom I betrothed to myself for a hundred foreskin of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband from Paltiel, the son of Laish. And then her husband went along with her to Behurim, weeping behind her. So Abner said to him, go return and return. So David, he agrees to Abner, you know what? This sounds good. You're going to bring the other 11 tribes to me. We're going to be one happy family and nation. But this is what I want. I want my wife, Michael. Now, you know that, as you recall, that when David, when he slew Goliath there, the promise was given of Saul, anyone who defeats the champion Goliath, that you're going to get my daughter to marry and you're going to be exempt from taxes. So David, being even too young at that time, to be in the military, comes to see his brother. Here's Goliath stomping up and down the valley, issuing this challenge to the children of Israel and to anyone to come out and fight him. And David went out, and we know the story how he slew Goliath. And so David was supposed to get Saul's eldest daughter, but he would give her to another when Saul began to become bitter towards David. And so he would give her Michael. And David would marry Michael, and that was his first wife. But when David was running from Saul, we know in 1 Samuel chapter 25 that it was Saul that gave Michael away to another and it was, she was given to um, this individual in verse 15, Paltiel. Now, as you look at this, it's, it's kind of ironic. David has the right to ask for his wife back because she was given to another. But I do have to ask this question. Was David just doing this as a political move or did he just... Did he really love her? And I have a feeling that David didn't really love her, that he's doing it as a political move. And you can argue that he has the right to ask her back, that that she belonged to to him, but 
we're going to see in a few chapters that David is going to rebuke her and she's going to be barren, which shows that he didn't really have any relationship with her at all. Kind of a sad story. But we know that this individual that's in verse 15, he seemed to love her, Paltiel, because here he is, he's weeping as she's taken away and Abner just says, go home, get out of here. Pretty insensitive. But verse 17, Abner had communicated with the elders of Israel, saying, In time past, you were seeking for David to be king over you. Now then do it, for the Lord has spoken of David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and the hand of all their enemies. And Abner also spoke in the hearing of Benjamin. Then Abner also went to speak in the hearing of David in Hebron, all that seemed good to Israel and the whole house of Benjamin. So Abner and 20 men with him came to David at Hebron, and David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And then Abner said to David, I will rise and go and gather all Israel to my lord the king, that they may make a covenant with you and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. And so we see that here is Abner. He brings some friends. He brings Michael, and um, he gives David back his first wife. And we know that Abner is saying, listen, I'll make a covenant, and all of Israel is going to be given to you. And, um, and again, we're going to give the, the, the message that you're the man, David. You're the king of Israel. Now, Ishbosheth, he has really no support at all. As we see in verse 22, at that moment, the servants of David and Joab came from a raid and brought much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David in Hebron, for he had sent him away, and he had gone in peace. And when Joab and all the troops that were with him had come, they told Joab, saying, Abner the son of Ner came to the king, and he sent him away, and he has gone in peace. Then Joab came to the king and said, What have you done? Look, Abner came to you. Why is it that you sent him away? And he has already gone. So here is Joab. He is the head of David's men. And you recall that as we saw in chapter 2 last week, that when the, the forces of Ishbosheth, that is Abner and his men, um, they went to battle against Joab and his men. They had this skirmish. And it was Joab that had this brother. His name was Ahasel. And Ahasel, he was one that was swift like a gazelle. In other words, he was pursuing Abner. And as we saw that Abner turned around and said, quit pursuing me. And he said, no, I'm not going to quit pursuing you. And we know that it would be that it was Joab's brother to continue to pursue him. And it was Ishel that as he pursued Abner, he didn't even have a sword. And so Abner would turn to him and say, at least get your sword, get your armor if you're going to come and fight against me. But ASL wouldn't do that. So we see that he ended up being killed by Abner. And so Joab, he's looking to avenge his brother's death, isn't he? He's angry. He's upset at this. He hears that Abner and his men were with David. They had this feast. They're making this covenant. He comes to David and he says, you can't trust him. You can't trust him. He, he, he can't be trusted. Why did you let him go? So he's going to come up with his own plan as we read there in verse 25. 
as we see, surely you realize that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you're doing. In other words, he's a spy. You can't trust him, David. And so verse 26, when David had gone from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner who brought him back from the well of Sarah. But David did not know it. Now when Abner had returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside in the gate to speak with him privately and there stabbed him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Ahishel, his brother. So Joab ends up avenging his brother's death. Now it's interesting, when you look at Joshua chapter 21, when you look at the book of Leviticus, there were certain cities that were designated as cities of refuge. Do you remember that in our study of the Old Testament? And those cities of refuge would be planted all throughout Israel to where it wouldn't be more than a day's walk for anybody to go to. And what those cities of refuge were for was that when you were involved in an accidental death, let's say you're working out in the field and you take your pick and swing it and you hit somebody and you accidentally kill them, you could then at that time go to a city of refuge that was listed there. And you could find refuge in that city. Because remember, back in ancient times, they didn't have investigators and a police force and district attorneys and county jails and all of this. If you wanted justice, you had to put that into motion. You had to come to the gate of the city or the elders that was nearest to you. If you had a case against somebody, you had to bring them. But what would happen oftentimes is that if you accidentally killed somebody, then their relatives, who are called the avenger of blood, would come after you to avenge their relative's death. So that's why they set up that city of refuge so you could go there and you were safe in that city. The avenger of blood could not come after you. And so there would be a hearing, and if they found that it wasn't deliberate, that it wasn't premeditated, that it was an accident, then you had to stay in that city of refuge and you were safe in that city. But if you left, then the avenger of blood could get you. So we covered all of that. That's what those cities of refuge were about, and Hebron was one of them. So here is Abner, and it's interesting, when you read commentators, they suggest that here's Abner, he felt safe in Hebron because it was a city of refuge, but we also know that it is Joab here that took him out to the gate of the city and then killed him there, and we know that in the law that they were not to leave the city. If you went out to the gate of the city or outside the walls, then the avenger of blood could get you. Here's the thing, though. I don't think that really any of that applies because Ahishel was killed in battle. And Joab here is taking matters into his own hands. And one of the things that we're going to see in tonight's lesson that we're going to continue to see is what happens when you take things into your own hands. It ends up becoming disastrous. It ends up not working out in the way that it could have if you let the Lord to work. And here is Joab. We're going to see that he's really a loose cannon. As we go through 2 Samuel, he's going to be one that oftentimes will do things that benefit him, but he does it in his own way, you know, in uh, his own understanding. And here he does the same thing. What he does here is he really he murders Abner here. And he ends up um, doing him in as he avenges his brother's, you know, death that was done in battle and Verse 28, and afterwards when David heard it, he said, My kingdom and I are guiltless before the Lord forever of the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. Let it rest on the head of Joab and on all his father's house, and let there never fail to be in the house of Joab one who has a discharge or is a leper 
or leans on his staff or falls by the sword or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had killed their brother Asel in Gibeon in the battle. And then David said to Joab and all the people who were with him, tear your clothes, gird yourself, sackcloth and mourn for Abner. And King David followed the coffin. So David hears about it. He, he, it's interesting that we see in verse 29 that he pronounces kind of this, this curse upon Joab's uh, family and um, says these things here. But then we know that David begins to mourn for Abner. And verse 32, they buried Abner in Hebron, and the king lifted his voice and wept at the grave of Abner, and all the people wept. And the king sang a lament over Abner and said, Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, nor your feet put in fetters. As a man falls before wicked men, so you fell. Interesting, isn't it? As he laments over Abner, he had respect for Abner, and he is saying that Abner, he's going to go on to say that Abner was, you know, a, a great guy, that Abner was, was one that um, was uh, righteous, and, and we're going to see that David's going to speak of that about Abner, but he says about Joab, his captain of his army, and will continue to be the captain of his army, is one who does wickedly. But he says Abner should he fall as a fool as well. You see, Abner shouldn't have gone with Joab. He should have known that Joab is taking me aside privately. I killed his brother just a short time ago. Abner was foolish to do that. He was foolish to go outside the city of refuge, if that would have applied in this case, so the avenger of blood could get to him. But the lesson for you and for me is simply this, folks. You see, as we have God's word, and as you come and you're studying God's word and you're taking it in and you're learning God's commandments and his principles and his truths and you're learning about the love of the Lord, you're growing in godly wisdom. You're growing in wisdom as long as you apply those things into your life. We don't have to live foolishly, do we? And all of us, I think we know people, I'm certain that all of us do, that we look at people in their lives and we think, oh, you know what, they don't have to go through the stuff that they're going through and the, the terrible consequences and the pain and the sorrow that they're experiencing because they're living foolishly. We have the Word of God that is given to us so we can live wisely. But you see, it's not just knowing God's Word, it's having it worked out in your life. And Abner was one that was... I think desiring to help David, and David recognized that, but David also recognized, should Abner die as a fool dies, we don't have to live a foolish life. And so what my prayer and hope for all of us here at Calvary Chapel is that as we continue to grow in God's word, and as you come out on Wednesday nights and you're taking in the Old Testament, there's so many principles that are there, and, and we see pictures of what happens when people do their own thing or go their own direction or they make decisions that are foolish decisions. And Abner did that. And you and I can learn what we are to do and what we are not to do so we can live wisely in a way that is going to keep us from a lot of heartache and sorrow in our lives. I'm so thankful for the Word of God. I, I don't know what my life would be like if I didn't have the Word of God and continuing to know it and study it and apply it in my life when it comes to my family, when it comes to my ministry, when it comes to every area of my life. Folks, get to know the Word of God. Continue to study it. And I know that it isn't always easy to come out on Wednesday nights and have Bible study. And it's not always pleasing to the flesh, but it will feed the Spirit. 
And it will cause you to grow to where you can live life in a very wise way and in a good way, experiencing that abundant life that the Lord has for you. And so verse 35, when all the people came to persuade David to eat food while he was still day, David took an oath saying, God do so to me and more also if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. Now all the people took note of it and it pleased them since whatever the king did pleased all the people. For all the people in all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's intent to kill Abner, the son of Ner. Then the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? So David continues to, to commend Abner. He was a great man. He was a prince. Um, he was a good guy. And so verse 39, David says, I am weak today. Though anointed king and these men, the sons of Zeruiah, are too harsh for me. The Lord shall repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. Interesting. David knew that Joab was a harsh man, and we're going to see that Joab indeed was a harsh man. And David says, these guys are just, they're too harsh for me. I'm weak today. I can't deal with this situation. And I'm going to let the Lord deal with it. And that's a great place for us to be whenever that we are dealing with the situation or dealing with an individual or individuals Maybe it's more than one person where we think, you know, I'm in a position where there's not a whole lot that I can do. I feel weak in this situation. You give it to the Lord and let him be your defender. And let him protect you and guide you and strengthen you. And you give it to him and that's not a bad place to be. Because I know that I've been places in my life where I thought there's not a whole lot that I can do in this situation. And Lord, I have to give it to you. You deal with this situation. You deal with this individual. You deal with this group of people. Lord, what they're doing is not right or, or it's wrong or whatever it may be. They're attacking me. They're attacking my family. They're attacking the church. And you know what? The Lord will honor that and he will work on your behalf. But I know that's a good place for me to just give it to the Lord and just let it be there and let him deal with it. Because here's the thing. Sometimes we can look at people's lives and we can think, that person's so mean to me or my family or they're mean to others or it seems like they're dishonest and they're getting away with it. Know this, they're not getting away with it. And David knew that. He said, May the Lord shall repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. There is a law, a spiritual law in the book of Galatians. Whatever a man sows, so shall he reap. And that is a law for every single one of us. And we can look at that individual and think, well, they're getting away with this and dishonesty or whatever. They're not getting away with it in the Lord's perspective. Because whatever a man sows, so he'll reap. And if he reaps seeds of, of the flesh, of the flesh is going to reap corruption, is what the scripture says. There's no one that is exempt from that. And eventually, that harvest is going to come in. And so we can trust, Lord, that you see, and Lord, that you're going to take care of it, and Lord, I'm just going to rest in that. And Lord, if you're going to rescue me, I know that you will. And Lord, if you're going to take me out of that situation, you're going to protect me. But Lord, I also know that what they're doing in being wrong or wicked or in justice, you know, um, in a situation or whatever it might be, that Lord, I know that they're going to reap a harvest of corruption. Because your word is true. And Lord, you're going to deal with it.
So chapter 4, very quickly, when Saul's son heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost heart and all Israel was troubled. So Abner's gone. He knows that he doesn't have much support at all. In verse 2, now Saul's son had two men who were captains of troops. The name of one was Behanna, and the name of the other was Rechab, the son of Rimmon, the, um, the Berarothite, and the children of Benjamin. For Bararoth was part of Benjamin, because the Bararothites fled to Gittim and have been sojourners there until this day. So what we read about now is these two brothers that are mentioned here from the tribe of Benjamin. And we're going to see what they're going to do. But first, there's a little insert here in verse 4. Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son who was lame in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened as she made haste to flee that he fell and became lame. His name was Mehithosheth. And so this son of Jonathan, you remember Jonathan? was Saul's son, and Jonathan and David were very close. Their hearts were knitted together. They had a very special bond in God. They really cared for each other. Jonathan was very loyal to David. And you recall the covenant that they made with each other there in 1 Samuel. And it was Jonathan that came to David when David was being pursued by his father's, you know, or by Jonathan's father, Saul. And it was Jonathan that said, you know what? I know that my dad's pursuing you, wanting to kill you, but God is going to establish you on the throne of Israel. And when that happens, David, please remember my family. And the reason they made that covenant was because whenever a new king, a new family would be established as, as the new leader, they would usually kill everybody else of the old you know, monarchy or who sat on the throne. All their family they would do away with to make sure that none of the old you know, powers or the old king or the, the old, you know, rulers, their families would try to rebel and have a war. So they would usually just kill them all off. And as Jonathan that said, God has established you as king, David, and so please be good to my family. And we're going to see in chapter 9 that David is going to come and he's going to deal with Mehithosheth and be kind to him. It's a very touching story. But this little insert is given here. But these two brothers, as we continue the story in verse 5, the son of Rimmon and Berothite and Rechab and Behanna set out and came at about the heat of the day to the house of Ishbosheth, who was lying at his bed at noon. And they came there all the way into the house as though to get wheat, and they stabbed them in the stomach. Then Rechab and Behanna, his brother, escaped. And for when they came into the house, he was lying on his bed in his bedroom. Then they struck him and killed him, beheaded him, and took his head and were all night escaping through the plain. So pretty gory, pretty gruesome. Ishobeth is murdered by these two brothers. But I want us to note something here. I was thinking about this in verse 5. He's laying in his bed at noon. You know what it reminded me of? of? <laughs> not of any of our kids that sleep in till noon. <laughs> I'm not going to get on that soapbox. But what it did remind me of is what we talked about on Sunday. And you recall that Jesus said, watch. He's saying, pay attention. And again, I want to remind us at this time in our study how it's very important that we be awake spiritually. Here was Ishbosheth that at noon was in bed, sleeping in, not paying attention, and the enemy came and got him. 
And I want to remind us once again that, you see, if we are asleep spiritually and we're not awake, we're not sober, we're not vigilant, we're not watching, that's when the enemy has the opportunity to strike at us. So make sure that you are awake spiritually. Don't go to sleep, folks, in the days especially in which we're living in. And the enemy's working overtime, and he has a lot of weapons that he uses to come against us. Be awake. Be, be vigilant. Be watching for the Lord, but also be watching out for the enemy who's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, as Peter writes in his epistle. So here he was. He was in bed. He ends up being killed. They escaped with his head, verse 8, as we finish tonight. And they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, Here's the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. And the Lord has avenged my Lord, the king this day of Saul and his descendants. I think they were looking for a reward. But David answered Rechab and Bahana, his brother, the sons of Rimmon, the Berarothite, and said to them, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all adversity. When someone told me, saying, Look, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good news, I arrested him and had him executed in Ziglag, the one who thought I would give him a reward for his news. We saw that in chapter 1, didn't we? And how much more when wicked men have killed a righteous person in his own house on his bed. Therefore, I shall not require his blood at your hand and remove you from the earth. So David commanded his young men. So they executed them, cut off their hands and feet, hanged them by the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner in Hebron. And so David, he here, um, as we see, he says to these two guys, it doesn't work with me what you're doing. There was the Amalekite that told me about Saul and the Amalekite who had killed Saul as the report came back to David in chapter 1 of 2 Samuel. And David said, you know what? You testified against yourself and he executed that Amalekite and he executed these guys. Here's the thing that I want to leave you with tonight and then we'll go to prayer. These guys thought that they were being God's servants. Here, David, we've done you a head, you know, done you a favor holding the head of Isbosheth. We've done good here. They thought they were being God's servants. But they weren't doing what was pleasing to the master or to the king. Because they took matters into their own hands. And what we've seen here is what happens tonight in chapter 3 and chapter 4. With Joab, we've seen it with these two individuals. What happens when we take things into our own hands? We end up making a mess of things. And this is a messy situation and we end up getting hurt and causing hurt. And it's important for us as God's servants that we're doing what is pleasing to the Lord and what is honoring to Him. And, and we, we're doing what His will is for us in our lives. And how we can know that again is to know Him and to know His heart and His character and His nature as we study God, as we read this book, as we seek Him, as we listen to that still small voice. But listen, a servant of God, being a true bondservant of the Lord, means that you're doing what the Master wants you to do. You're not doing things in your own way, in your own understanding. It is, I am yielded to you, Lord, in everything. And even when you give me instructions where I don't understand, or I may not have it figured out how you're going to work good in this situation. I'm going to trust you, and I'm going to continue to do what is pleasing in your sight. And you're going to see that God's word is true, he is faithful, he is good. And he'll show himself strong on behalf of you. 
You see, he's looking to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal towards him, desiring to just follow the master's commands, to follow after the king, whatever you tell me to do, but not taking matters into our own hands. Very important. Too many Christians, and unfortunately, even in my own life, there have been times where I thought, I'll just do this and not really pray about it or not really you know, seek the Lord on it. Being a servant of the Lord is, Lord, I want to do what you've called me to do in a way that is pleasing to you and honors you. And so, Father, we thank you. We thank you for these lessons tonight and these chapters, and thank you for those who are here tonight. And, Lord, I do pray that, that we see what happens when, in the text that we read in, in both chapters, what happens if we take matters into our own hands, if we become vengeful, if we want to do things out of wrong motives. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't be that way. Lord, help us to see you as our refuge, and Lord, to see you as the one who truly is going to guide us, that we would have a heart that desires to honor you. And Lord, as your servants, they would be at the command of our master, our King, Jesus Christ. And that means that, Lord, we need to, to get our marching orders from you, our instructions and guidance every day as we go to you in devotions. Lord, that we would seek you through the word of God, sensitive to the still small voice of the Lord that we hear. And Lord, I pray if there's any of us that are here tonight, that Lord, maybe there's a situation in our lives or maybe there's someone in our lives or maybe we're wanting to be a vengeful or maybe we want to get back at them or maybe we're plotting and planning how, Lord, we can come at them <clears throat> or get to them, whatever it might be, or Maybe we're planning something else. We haven't really sought you, Lord. Lord, I pray in every area of our lives, in every situation that we would, that we would seek you wholeheartedly. And Lord, that we would learn like David did. That David waited for you. And he didn't push the issue. But we would learn that you're our refuge and strength and you're our strong tower and you're our help. Father, I thank you for your goodness and faithfulness, your forgiveness in our lives. Father, I pray that as we ponder these things and think about these things, that, Lord, that we would always have our hearts that are presented before you. Father, I'm so thankful for your word, that we can live wisely, not as fools, and we can walk in a wise way to experience that abundant life that you have for us. Lord, bless your people. I know we come in with different needs. Lord, we come in with things that weigh on us. Lord.